0: Tonight we deal with the subject of figures of speech used in the Bible. I hold up this book just as an example by E.W. Bullinger. This is the number one work on figures of speech in the Bible. It's not worth very much. I've had it for 20, 25 years. A 30 minutes spent in this book and you basically want to give up on understanding the Bible. This man was a dispensationalist and saw things that weren't there to really be seen. And he cataloged catalog, 212 examples of figures of speech. 212 individual figures of speech, you know, I may show you 10 or 12 tonight, it's just a little excessive, but uh, the point being, figures of speech are a main part of any language and they're a large part of our language and they're a large part of what the Holy Spirit chose to put in our King James Bibles. So let's go and we'll break in about 50 minutes, we'll have a short break and we'll come back and finish up at 830 We are thankful to the God of heaven for our Bibles, and we're thankful for the understanding He's shown us, and we want Him to show us more. What are figures of speech? They're words used in a different way than those words are ordinarily used. That's what a figure of speech is. It's got a figurative sense to the words instead of a literal. They're words intending something other than the literal definition of those words. It's a departure from the usual rules of our language to make a point. Our study is going to be superficial due to the time that we're giving it. And if you want to know more, I can help you find websites, books, that you can look at for a uh, more in-depth study. Why use figures of speech? They add beauty to our language, a lot of variety. And they give force to words and bring intensity and uh, a graphical verbal presentation of things. God chose to use them. Lots of them in the Bible. The Bible ought to be the number one course chosen for English literature classes because when you talk about a subject like figures of speech, the Bible is such a great example. They make writing come alive with intensity when you use figures of speech well, and the Bible does. The Holy Spirit chose the figures like First Corinthians 2.13 tells us that we the words that we use are not our words, but the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We humbly choose to learn the Spirit's words. That's, that's how far we go in our King James Bibles. We be, God said it, that settles it for us. We believe whatever words are there are God's choice of words. And we find our Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul following that same pattern by arguing from single words. Four examples of our Lord doing it, four examples of Paul doing it from single words which other versions, by corrupting words, destroy the internal integrity of the Bible. That's slightly off the subject, but we trust every figure of speech we find in the Bible. If you miss or ignore a figure of speech, it's going to lead to an error in interpreting Scripture, and that's the whole point of what we're studying. Bible hermeneutics is the art and science of understanding and interpreting Scripture. And why worry about figures of speech? Because if you miss them, You're going to miss some truth. And we want to see some of those examples tonight. You know, some people take figurative language literally, and so they miss. Some take literal language figuratively. You can miss the truth that way as well. Literalists love to play games with God's Word by trying to find a literal explanation for every sentence of Scripture when there are so many figures of speech. Have you ever heard a preacher say the Bible means what it says and says what it means? Really? Really? That's deep thought. What about a figure of speech? What about irony? Irony is a figure of speech we're going to look at where the Bible means exactly opposite of what it says. We're going to look at hyperbole, which is an exaggeration that you're supposed to be able to figure out that the Bible doesn't mean what it said. And we're going to see some errors that come from not recognizing that. How do we do it? If words are absurd, literally, there's a figure of speech involved. If the Bible says that the spies went into the land of Canaan and found the cities walled up to heaven, what do you think about it? Those are high walls, aren't they? How do they keep standing? How'd they paint them? How'd they build them? How do they get over them? Who laid the last stone? Well, that's absurd, so we know there's a figure of speech there. We're going to identify that figure of speech. Because that's what we want to do next. We want to identify the figure and its sense and what it does to the meaning intended by the Spirit. We want to see the Holy Spirit's intent by the figure of speech so we get the full power and weight of God's Word. We want to convert that figure back to literal words to restate it as to exactly what the Bible was saying. In the example I just gave you, oh, those cities had big walls. That's all they were saying. Those cities have big walls and we're scared we don't know that we can get over them or through them. Those are ten spies. Do you think Joshua and Caleb would have said anything like that? That it said the bigger they come, the harder they fall. (laughs) Or the easier they fall, or the bigger the bang when they do fall. Let's get started. First figure of speech we want to look at tonight is a simile. You learned some of these in school, and I hope you remember it, and some of this will just be a refresher course, so that when you're reading the Bible, you think about what you're reading. A figure of speech that compares things. The first three we're going to look at compare things. One of the ways that you can explain a concept is to compare it to something else that's better known by your hearer. If you're trying to explain something that they don't really understand, it's a concept, it's abstract... Um, if you can compare it to something that is more concrete that they understand, you're going to be able to communicate that truth to them faster. Intelligence is the ability to communicate information. And figures of speech are a powerful tool at conveying information in a short number of words with a lot of power. Similes help us. It's usually spotted by like or as. Those two little words give it away that it's a simile and not a metaphor. Similes directly state the comparison. This thing is like that thing. It is as this other thing. When you have like and as in there, it's called a simile. Other related figures are not as obvious. Like a metaphor is not as obvious as a simile because you don't have like or as to help you out. We want to discover the right aspect of the comparison that the Holy Spirit is making. When the Holy Spirit is comparing two things, is he comparing every attribute of this thing with every attribute of that thing? If we miss and pick the wrong attribute of this thing to be compared to the attribute of this thing, we miss. We want to find out exactly what is the point that the Holy Spirit is comparing. Example of a simile. He is like a bull in a china shop. That's something we might say about a person who's clumsy. He is like a bull in a china shop. Example, he is as mad as a hornet. Notice the word as is telling us it's a simile. He's not a hornet. He's as mad as a hornet. Could be if you sprayed it with water while you were washing your car. He is as proud as a peacock. There's as giving it away again. He moves like a snail. There's as and like in each of these four examples telling us that it's a simile where we're making a comparison. He, that is my brother Paul, moves like a snail. That is a little creature that moves very slowly. I'll think of something good before the night's out to make up for what I just did. But I, want, I just want to have an example. She is as pretty as a picture. Our statements that come out of our mouths every day. You use similes all the time. Let's keep learning about similes. Analyze. He is like a bull in a china shop. Why is a bull used for the comparison with this person that's clumsy? Are we using the bull because the bull is strong? This is important. You think, I know similes. I'm an expert on similes. I could write a book on similes. Really? Okay. Well, let's just think about he is like a bull in a china shop. Are we... Worried or considering the bull's strength? No. No. His weight? No. No. His appetite? No. Are all those things pretty serious when you consider a bull? Strength, weight, appetite? What are we thinking about when we say he is like a bull in a china shop? He is large and clumsy when it comes to small, delicate, shelved items. He's going to knock something over before he gets out of the room. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Psalm seventeen eight. There is a wonderful simile in the Bible where David is praying for God to keep him as the apple of the eye. What is the apple of the eye, by the way? That's a part in the eye that you protect very carefully. When dust comes at you or something comes towards your eye, you blink, you you close them tight if it's strong. Because you're going to protect, and they're part of, it has nothing to do with an apple that hangs on a tree. It's the iris part of the eyeball. And we safeguard that very carefully. So I think everybody in here has two functioning eyes, right? You've been shooting at each other with BB guns when you were kids. You were throwing stones, throwing nuts. He smashed my iris once with a nut. He hit me right, in the, right in the eye while I was, that's my brother, two times, I had a dilated, my pupil was as big as my eye for about three months. Everything's fine. The Lord's good. He knows, that, he knows boys throw nuts at each other with, in brotherly love. Keep me as the apple of the eye. There's a comparison. David is saying, I want to be dear to you like this special apparatus in my eye is dear to me. Protect me like that. Uh, David said, I am like, notice the giveaway, we have a simile, a comparison, David and a bird. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. Do owls fly in flocks? No. What does David say? That he has wings? Feathers? He's all alone. He's all alone. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. A weaned child, when you've taken that child off the breast and put it on a cup, has usually quieted itself and is no longer screaming every three hours for mommy to bring the two big milk jugs. Anyway, you know what I mean. For mommy to nurse the baby. Simile. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 9, as the prophet gets started in his prophecies against Israel and Judah, he points out that if God had not mercifully preserved a small portion, a remnant in that nation, they'd have been burned up utterly, totally, like the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the plain. So he draws a comparison there between his people and the people of Lot's city and how they all disappeared and all the Israelites and Jews would have disappeared if God hadn't left them a very small remnant. There's a comparison there and the comparison is God's mercy and grace toward Israel to leave a small remnant. Except he had done it, they'd have all disappeared. Jesus told his disciples, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Other men are going to bite you. Other men are going to devour you. Other men are going to butcher you. And yes, other men are going to fry you and eat you. Eric, don't forget tonight, I brought you some good reading. The History of the Evangelical Churches of the Valleys of Piedmont. This was written for Oliver Cromwell. And this is a history of what the churches of Jesus Christ that hid in the Alps in the northern part of Italy went through. It's unbelievable. There's pictures and descriptions with the names of people that had certain body parts cut off, fried in frying pans, and eaten. I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Three similes in one verse. You're going to be the helpless victim... Of this rapacious, wild creatures around you, the wicked, that are going to hate what you do. I'll protect you, but while you're out there, be wise as serpents. That doesn't mean we slither around. That doesn't mean we lie like the devil. It means that we use all the subtlety we can. Paul said, I caught you with guile. Speaking of the Corinthians. Paul said, I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. To those that are without law, I became without law. Paul was as wise as a serpent, and he was as harmless as a dove. Gentle, meek, like the Lord Jesus Christ. There are similes in practice in our Bibles. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward. Well, so far we haven't hit the part of the simile that the Lord wants us to get. But are within, full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. The whole point of the verse is, you Pharisees, outwardly you look religious, but you're corrupt on the inside. And it's 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 swinging on the word like, which tells us that it's a simile by comparing the religious leaders of his day, the Lord Jesus Christ's day, to sepulchers with rotting corpses on the inside. All uncleanness, filthy, vile, stinking stench. Remember what Lazarus' sister said about him after four days? Lord, he stinketh. Simile. Intelligence is able to communicate meaning, and similes help us do that. They add depth and intensity of meaning as we talk and compare and try to present aspects of some thing by comparing it to other things so that you can get an idea about it, a full idea, a beautiful idea, a forceful idea, a convincing idea with the least amount of words. The Holy Spirit used like in the Bible 581 times and as 2,872 times. There's many similes for us to identify. They can be spotted and rightly applied by looking for as and like. We just le- looked at a few examples of similes. That's pretty simple. Let's go to metaphor. It's another figure that makes a comparison and it does it by actual representation There's no as and there's no like to help us find it. The comparison is transferred without those two little giveaway words. A metaphor declares a thing is another thing. Without saying it's like that thing or it's as that thing, it is that thing. Extended metaphors are parables and allegories which are found in the Bible, which are longer than a phrase or a sentence. They can be several sentences or they can be a whole chapter. Solomon's Proverbs use similes or metaphors. Simile. He is like a clumsy ox. The word like makes the comparison. Simile. He is as clumsy as an ox. Both times we're told that it's a simile because of the use of like and as. What's a metaphor? He's a clumsy ox. See, we don't say he's like a clumsy ox. He's as clumsy as an ox. We just say, He's a clumsy ox. That's a metaphor. There's two things there. He, clumsy ox. We're just saying he is that. We don't say he is like that. But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 4.20 does not say that being in Egypt was like being in an iron furnace. It was as if they had been in an iron furnace. There's no like or as. It's just a statement that Egypt was an iron furnace that tried and burned up those poor children of Abraham until the Lord brought them out. The Lord is my shepherd. He doesn't say the Lord is like a shepherd or as a shepherd. He just says the Lord is my shepherd. And you know, by getting out the word like and as, it's powerful. It's blunt. It's short. We love it. We love that little statement. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord isn't really a shepherd, and we aren't really sheep. But the comparison's being made without like or as, and we like the comparison. We'll we'll happily tell the Lord that we'll be his little sheep, and that he can take care of us, because when he takes care of us, like a shepherd takes care of his sheep, we're not going to want for anything. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. This is one of my favorite verses from when I was a teenager. I wanted my I wanted my wife as a wife so bad and she burned this into a little log for me and I had it for many years. I've probably told many of you that. For the Lord God is a sun. The sun is our source of light, our source of life, our source of well-being, warmth. He provides all the positive things in our lives. The Lord God is a shield. He protects us from every bad thing in our lives. And this verse tells us both. It doesn't say the Lord is like a son. But there's a comparison being made here. And the the transfer is just made without saying like or as. The Lord God is a son and shield. Well, the Lord isn't a son and He's not a shield. He is the infinite, immortal, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, independent, Spirit, Creator, Jehovah, I am that I am. But He's like a son and He's like a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. He's able to give everything. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. And I've had it for 34 years and a month. Thank you, Lord. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the door. I hope you remember these things. These are going to save us from heresy down the road in this study. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. Now see, there's no like or as. I am the vine. But we know it's a comparison, don't we? Is he really a vine? Does he have water flowing through him from the earth and nutrients carried out of the soil? Does the sun strike up on his leaves and cause photosynthesis to occur? No, 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 no. I am the door. Does he have hinges? A knob. Does he need to be oiled from time to time? No, no, no. He is like a door. He is a way of entry into something good. I am the door of the sheepfold. Metaphors. Are metaphors important? They are very important. Men like you have been killed for a metaphor. And when he had given thanks, this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he break it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Have men died for that text? And when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Would you die for these words as a metaphor? There's two willing murders in here. There's three. I agree. We must learn more before identifying the enemies from this text alone. Hypocatastasis is the third progression in the difficulty of seeing comparisons. The comparison is by implication only. Only one of the two nouns is stated. You know, with a simile, you have both nouns stated. He is like a clumsy ox. He, ox, like in the middle. Metaphor, he is a clumsy ox. This one doesn't have that. The other noun is out of sight or under. That's why it's called hypo. The effect is very powerful and moving and they're in the Bible. Simile. He is like a clumsy ox. Simile. He is as clumsy as an ox. Metaphor. He is a clumsy ox. Metaphor. He is at, he is an ox in his clumsiness. Ox. Hypo-catastasis. There's no like or as. There's no he is this. It's just that is what you are. Ox. Now, when you're running through a book and you just see a word like that, you have to be able to figure out the two nouns, the comparison, and what's being compared. Now, a simile is much more convenient for us figuring it out. Similes are relatively gentle and mild. Example, you eat like a pig. You say, that's not very gentle it's not very mild. Well, it is compared to what I'm about to hit you with. You eat like a pig. Metaphors are more intense than similes. Example, you're a pig. Hypocatastases are even more intense. Pig! Are you with me? Yep. You use these words, but there's names for them. Do you know why there's names for them? Because when you're analyzing someone's writing, you better be able to identify the figure of speech that's being used and then the part of the comparison that you want to lay hold of. And he said unto them, This is Samson, if ye had not plowed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. How old was his heifer? What breed was it? Thank you, Dad. Beautiful. Beautiful. You know, I love using this little expression, Travis, I use this with you and Jennifer on Sunday. And the two of them looked at me like I had just called Jennifer a cow. The two of them were talking to me, and I, he said, oh, you already know. And I said, yes, I was plowing with your heifer. And they looked at me like, what would you call Jennifer a cow for? Because there was, there's a comparison being made here. And the comparison is between Samson's wife and his heifer. They went and plowed, they went and talked to Samson's wife and found the answer to the riddle. You know, he got a little irritated with that. He had promised them, if you can figure out my riddle in seven days, I'll get you all a new set of clothing. So 30 of them came to him and told them that the answer was a lion carcass that he had killed and it had bees in it that had made honey. He said, fine, you plowed with my heifers. So he went down out in the street and grabbed 30 Philistines, killed them, took their clothes, and handed them 30 sets of clothing. Don't you love Samson? He's our brother. He's in heaven. He had a problem with Philistine whores. Would to God that we'll hate all whores, Philistine or American, and that we'll we'll be virtuous and righteous all the days of our lives. He did judge Israel. He has four chapters in the Bible. He is in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Praise God's mercy. But that's where that expression comes from. Jesus in Psalm 22, this is a prophecy of Him on the cross, For dogs have compassed me. What breed? Roman and Jewish. Dogs have circled me around. They're all around me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. I'm all trapped in and boxed in on every side. They pierced my hands and my feet. Dogs. There's a comparison being made there between the wicked the wicked and dogs. But it's just stated without the wicked are dogs or the wicked are like dogs. It's just dogs. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple. Where was he standing? <laughs> Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. What did they start reasoning about? Now you've, you've been thinking as I've been talking and I said what breed... You've been saying you're asking infantile questions as if you were talking to kindergartners. Really? Grown men that were educated more than anyone in this room heard this statement by the Lord Jesus Christ and what did they start to reason about? How long it had taken to build that temple and that Jesus didn't appear to be old enough. Now is that retarded reasoning? Because they missed the hypo. Castastasis. They missed it. You know, this passage goes on and tells us Jesus was speaking of his body. He meant destroy this body. Go ahead and hang me on a cross. He was prophesying what they would do to them and in three days I will raise it up. Did he do that? Yes. Yes. Praise the Lord he did it. Our older brother lives on high tonight and reigns at the right hand of God and his enemies were ground under his feet just like he prophesied he would. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Is it a simile? Peter, you're like the devil. Nope. Is it a metaphor? Peter, you're the devil. Nope. Satan, get thee behind me. Peter was talking in a way that was totally contrary to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's an example in the Bible. You say he was talking to the devil. No, he wasn't. He was talking to Peter. It says, And he turned, and I believe the Holy Spirit... And said unto Peter, get thee. He wasn't even talking to two people. He was talking to one being, indicated by the pronoun. Second person starts with a T, thee, Peter. But he calls him Satan like earlier. Pig, you eat like a pig. You are a pig. Pig, you're talking like the devil. You're the devil. Satan. Because St. Peter was carnally minded and did not want this to happen to his Lord and Master because he did not consider at this time the importance of the spiritual purpose Jesus Christ was here in the world. We've just been through three figures of speech in the Bible. There are three figures of speech that involve comparisons, similes, metaphors, and hypokastastases, when it's plural. A figure of substitution is what we want to look at now. It's called metonymy. When we substitute, now we've got two nouns. We're not comparing them. We've got this noun and we say, nah, it's too hard for them to understand. I'll use this noun. You use it all the time. An attribute or related aspects is substituted. And when we take away this noun and use this noun, we're not referring to every single part of this noun. We just want you to get certain things. A considered object, the one we're considering, is replaced... By an aspect of that thing, or something closely related to it, a cause, an effect, or some other relationship to it. One noun disappears because it's replaced by another. Example, step on the gas. What do you want me to do? Get out, drop a court, spread a court on the sphinx concrete up here, and then stand on it? I'm not trying to be funny. Step on the gas. Do we say those words? We're substituting gas for something else. The accelerator. The accelerator controls the gas. The accelerator is the cause of the gas. So, we're putting the effect for the cause. Gas is supplied to the engine when we step on the accelerator. We substitute the fuel for the accelerator. We do not mean to stand on gasoline at all. We replace accelerator with what it controls. Compare, increase your speed. You know, you're in a hurry to get someplace, and your buddy's driving, and you say, would you mind increasing your speed a little? You know, how do we usually say it? Step on the gas. Step on it. That's even better. Step on the accelerator, please. just doesn't get it, does it? You know what? The Holy Spirit knows that. The language of the Bible is powerful. Example. Here's another example of metonymy. He really used his head. We substitute the location for the brain itself. We meant he used what's in his head, his brain, but we say head. We do not mean he banged his skull at all. We replace brain with where the brain is found. Compare, he used his brain. Yeah, but you know, so we don't say it that way. It's just not common to say it that way. He really used his head. We like that expression. It's just accepted as superior to, he used his intellectual capabilities of solving this situation. He used his head. Wine is a mocker. You say, what does all these figures of speech mean? These figures of speech, if you don't get them, you're going to take a verse like this and condemn the use of wine and strong drinks. Wine is a mocker. Is it really? Have you ever seen a wine cabinet or a wine cellar? If you turn the lights out in a wine cellar and close the door, are those bottles in there going to mock each other? What are they going to be saying to each other? Are they going to start singing against each other? Being sarcastic with one another? Wines never mocked anything. Literally. Strong drink is raging. You ever put a bottle of Jim Beam beside a bottle of Jack Daniels? Turn out the lights and shut the door? Do they go at fisticuffs with each other? Do they start fighting? It says strong drink is raging. Do they leap off the shelf and batter anyone that walks in the closet? listen, Listen, have you ever had to deal with that verse when somebody's... Slapping you in the face with Proverbs 20 and verse 1? Wine is a mocker. Wine is a mocker. Yes, wine is a mocker. Four English words tell me what they mean. It's a, They're metonyms. There's metonymy. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Here, the cause is substituted for the effect. What mocks a man? Drunkenness. What causes a man to rage when he wasn't really in a fighting mood and there was nothing to fight about? Strong drink. Those are the causes that lead toward drunkenness. Drunkenness is the actual cause of mock, mockery. Drunkenness is the cause of saying something, doing something, that the next day you regret. Strong drink leads can lead to drunkenness, which causes you to fight at the drop of a hat, and you'll drop the hat yourself. If you've ever heard of barroom brawls and barroom fighting, it's often caused by the breakdown the, the uh the relaxation of your inhibitions by your central nervous system being relaxed by some alcohol. But it's drunkenness that leads to mockery. Being relaxed with a glass of wine doesn't mock anyone. It's drunkenness. But the wise man to make the point as short and as hard as possible and to give teetotalers enough rope to hang themselves, wrote it that way. Now see, this is a whole subject in itself. Did God know that the way He worded Proverbs 20 and verse 1, that teetotalers would use it to condemn any use of alcoholic beverages? Of course He did. But He also caused us to assemble on September 26th January 26th, the year 2011, to study figures of speech so that this verse would not give us a problem. Wine itself does does not mock people or things. Drunkenness causes mockery and fighting. Wine is a cause of drunkenness by excessive use that's in the heart of a man who drinks more than he should. The rod and reproof give wisdom. If you have a rod, and the rod that I used for many years was the little handle... For my mini blinds. When the children saw me going to work on the mini blinds, they knew I didn't care about our window treatments. I was going to take that little four foot plastic wand off those mini blinds and apply it to the best part of their bodies. The rod and reproof give wisdom. But if I put, if I left the rod on the mini blinds or if I put the rod in the closet, Or if I actually put it under their covers at night when I tuck them into bed, is the rod going to give them wisdom? No, No, it is the proper use of corporal punishment that gives wisdom. But you know, it's a whole, it's a whole lot shorter to say the rod gives wisdom, doesn't it? And you know what? It's better because it gets out there what the Bible recommends to use. Does it say the belt gives wisdom? Cutting their allowance gives wisdom. Grounding gives wisdom. Ever heard all those words? Where does it say that in the Bible? The rod and reproof give wisdom. Again, the cause is substituted for the effect. The rod is used for the effect in corporal punishment. Rod by itself doesn't give wisdom at all. It's proper corporal punishment that teaches wisdom. And the rod is a cause of corporal punishment. It's a tool of corporal punishment. The Bible says, rise up before the hoary head. Now, is this a picture on the wall? Is it a bust on a desk? Or what is the hoary head? An old man, an old woman, rise up before the hoary head. That is a white head, white-haired person. Generally describing someone that's older than you, stand up. Show some deference and honor. At the mouth of two witnesses. The testimony of two witnesses. But the mouth is what? It's the cause, the source of testimony. But it just says mouth. There is death in the pot. The tongue of the wise is health. Speech again. The lip of truth. Tools for speaking. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. God doesn't have eyes. He is an infinite, invisible, eternal spirit. To whom then will you liken me? But it says the eyes of the Lord. Because it is describing his providential observation and care over our life. Seeing us. Seeing where we should go. Seeing enemies approach. So he uses eyes because we like that thought. Because the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15 and verse 3. I have given you cleanness of teeth. Amos 4.6 Dentistry? Hunger? They didn't have food between their teeth. When you don't have anything to eat, you don't need floss, do you? I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. Authority in the New Testament church and kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ given to the apostles. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man is in hell. He's asking Abraham, I have five brothers. I don't want them to come here. Abraham's response, they have Moses and the prophets. Where were they to have Moses and the prophets? Where was Moses? In Scripture. They have the Scriptures that Moses wrote, and they have the Scriptures that the prophets wrote. But the Bible just says, Moses and the prophets. You say, I've got them all so far. Okay, good. He beareth not the sword in vain. Does our government even have a sword? Oh, yeah, they they do. They're all decorative, aren't they? They flashed them once in a while, but when was the last time our military or government used a sword? It's a symbol of the authority and a life-taking authority and power in government. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord. Here's a metonym. You can't drink a cup at all. You can only drink what's in the cup. Important. You're going you're gonna to want this later. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. In both cases, it's what holds the beverage that you can drink. Either the wine of the Lord's Supper or the wine of the wine offerings and drink offerings of pagan idols. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do you eat the table or what's on it? Metonyms throughout the Bible. The blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil. So do stripes, the inner parts, the belly. I remember once latching on to a commentary on the book of Proverbs for teenagers. Matthew, you've heard my explanation of this one, right? I got a whole of a commentary for teenagers, and this text said you know, that when you fall and hurt yourself and the the wound turns black and blue, that means it's getting better. Boy, the the verse should belong in a medical journal. And stripes, the inward parts of the belly, if you've got a six-pack, then you can know you're in good shape. Well, as a teenager, I like both explanations. That's ridiculous insanity. There's no wisdom in any of that. Why would Solomon write something so stupid? Don't, don't they have any respect for him? Those are metonyms. The blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil. A wound, what wound are we talking about? Stripes on the back. You've been spanked. You've been spanked. You've been beat according to the Bible description of that with a rod. And so you have stripes, and they turn blue. You know, they're not blue immediately. They're red. Then they turn blue. And those wounds, which is a description of corporal punishment, cleanse away evil. If it wasn't what I'm just telling you, then it wouldn't be an obscure statement, would it? And if it's not an obscure statement, then it doesn't belong in the book of Proverbs. This is in the book of Proverbs because he's teaching wisdom. And throughout the book of Proverbs... He has said, thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. And when you spank a child and it's red at first, then it turns blue, it's a wound and it cleanses away evil. It drives away sin. The Bible says that. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. It cleanses away evil. So do stripes, the inward parts of the belly. So when you're striped on the back... It's going to help your inner parts. And there's synecdoche, which is the next figure of speech in the word belly. It doesn't mean your literal belly. Stripes are not on the back for your literal stomach. It's for your inner man in this place called your belly. You see, that's a lot of figures of speech in one verse. No wonder Solomon called his Proverbs dark sayings of the wise. Proverbs chapter 1 some guess medically about black and blue. Others guess about the value of a six pack of stomach muscles. But here, effect is put for the cause, and it's metonymy. A beating that causes blue wounds works. Corporal punishment works. Stripes, the result of a beating, also work. Synecdoche. Let's go to another figure of speech that uses substitution. Now, we just had, you have one noun that you're trying to explain to someone. See, so you take it away and use another noun in hope that they'll see it. And this second noun is an aspect of this first one. It's a cause of it, it's an effect of it, or it's in some other relationship. In this figure of speech called synecdoche, a part of a thing is substituted for the thing. Or the whole thing is substituted for only a part of a thing. One noun disappears and another replaces it, but they are tied together in that this is either part of that noun, or it's all... Of that part. Many kinds of synecdoche are in the Bible and they're beyond this study. Example, all hands on deck. That's an expression that if you were a sailor, would you be confused? Would body parts be coming up and down stairs to arrive on the main floor of a carrier? What do we mean? Amputation? Amputees? All hands on deck. A part has come to mean the wholesaler. Example, I like your wheels. What do we mean? That they're round, shiny, custom wheels? Could we mean it literally? A figurative of speech or both? Yes, we could. What do we mean when we say, I like your wheels? I like your transportation. I like your car, your truck, whatever you're driving. It's Synecdoche. Synecdoche. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealings shall come down upon his own pate. Your pate is the part of your head that's covered with hair. Now, this prophecy in Psalm 7 is God's promise that when the wicked do something against you and make plans against you, and you're living righteously, God's going to bring down their plans on their own head. Now, does he mean it's literally going to fall down and smack them on their head? Or does it mean it's going to affect them in their own life? In their own life. But it says head. Was this verse fulfilled in the life of one Haman? Amen. Amen. But it involved another part of his anatomy more than his head. It involved his neck. Because he fell on his own gallows. Must this verse be literally fulfilled on a head? No. See the synecdoche in this verse, which is, that is the name of the figure of speech of using part for the whole. Think, all heads are counted as similar. Is that a common expression? The blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil, so do stripes, the reports the belly. Here, we're not looking at the blueness of a wound or the stripes, but at the word belly. It's synecdoche, For the rest of the inner part of man. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Do they rub the bellies of a fat Buddha to fulfill this verse? Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Do they rub their own bellies like a fat Buddha to fulfill this verse? Are these merely overeaters? Are they just gluttons? Or does the text tell us exactly what they are? They mind earthly things. Synecdoche. Belly is put for all carnal lusts. You know, that's a, this is, this is a lust that we take care of several times a day. In America, anywhere between five and twelve times a day, we take care of our bellies by feeding them. And so that is used as part of the man, referring to all of our lusts. You know, just a few inches downstairs from the belly are your loins. And our loins can lead to lust as well. And all that's included, minding earthly things. Like the sons of God marrying the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. And like Samson with the Philistine whores. And like David with Bathsheba. It wasn't directly his belly. belly's just put for part of the lust of the flesh. For the love of money is the root of all evil. These examples are very important. There's a word all. Do you know what the depth of most Baptist preachers is when it comes to the word all? All means all, and that's all all means. Really? The Bible says what it means and means what it says too, I suppose, right? For the love of money is the root of all evil. Did Adam eat the forbidden fruit for money? Isn't that the biggest act of evil in the history of the world? Until the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? Did David commit adultery for money? What was Bathsheba going to pay him for it? A synecdoche. Universal words for all kinds. This is a figure of speech using a universal word for all kinds of that particular thing. Not meaning every single thing without exception, but just all kinds. And you need knowledge like this if you ever try to defend the truth. Against an Arminian who wants to argue that all means all, and that's all all means. Is there a, metonym and a metaphor here also? For the love of money. Do men really love money? Do they actually want the green stuff to count and rub and get their fingers dirty? No, there's a metonym. They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Does that sound like a metaphor? They pierced themselves through. Does that sound like something with a spear running through you? But see, it's a metaphor describing the terrible consequences of coveting money and wealth. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. I have heard a man wax eloquent on how the fat of a flock was to be burned. Should fat be burned, not eaten for health's sake? What's that word fat in there for? Now, we're studying synecdoche, so all you got to be thinking about is part for the whole, whole for the part, part for the whole, whole for the part. Fat. Fat. Does that mean that he just he killed his sheep, carved off the fat, Buried the bones, skin, and meat? No. Was fat a special gift rather than the rest? I mean, if you just gave the fat, was that special? Or is fat synecdoche for the fattest and best of the flock? Right. See Genesis 45.18 if you have a question. It's the fat of the land. When we, when we talk about the fat of the land or the fat of the flock, we're talking about the biggest, the best, the, the, the most marbled the the best eating that we can pull out of a her flock or herd let's continue our study of figures of speech in the bible by going to hyperbole hyperbole and we have had five figures of speech three of comparison and two of substitution this is a figure of exaggeration the figure is not a lie because it's obvious that an exaggeration is being made to stress the point. If you use them, make sure they're very obvious, or you could be called a liar. The figure is to intensely make a strong point. They are common with us and in the Bible. Example, you scared me to death, but you're still talking and telling me about it. So you're not dead. I could eat a horse. Ah, maybe two or three pounds of one. You're as slow as a snail. I don't care if you're sleeping, you're faster than a snail. That's as old as the hills. The hills are called everlasting hills in the Bible. No, I don't think anything you're going to find is quite that old. Those players on that team are as big as Goliath. Well, he was nine nine. I don't think so. But we use exaggerations like this, and so no one calls you a liar, and they don't accuse you of doing something bad with your exaggeration. They know you are stressing the points that the players on the other team are large, that what you have is old, or what someone else has is old, that someone is slow and someone is hungry. Were Canaan's cities walled up to heaven? Did the Amalekites have numberless camels, and that is the Bible terminology? Like sand at the beach? Not quite. Like maybe one cubic inch of sand has more grains in it than there were camels with the Amalekites. Did David cause his bed to swim at night with his tears? That's what he said. You know, his maid came in, in the morning, opened the door, the water blew her over, and the bed had been in there swimming around all night doing breaststroke. David said, the Bible means what it says and says what it means. Well, it said David's bed swam with his tears. Is Abraham's seed as the dust of the earth? No. There's more pieces of dust in one cubic inch of earth. And I'm not minimizing the size of Abraham's seed. Had the world gone after Jesus according to the Pharisees in John 12:19? That's what they said. Did that include the Cherokee? Was the emperor of Japan worshiping Jesus of Nazareth? Was a very small... Didn't even count the Pharisees. Is Matthew 7, 3 through 5 truly about moats and beams? Or is he using the smallest thing he can think of and the biggest thing he can think of? Hyperbole. How hard is it to get a camel through a needle? The disciples had an opinion. When Jesus said that, how'd they respond? Who then can be saved? They saw the impossibility of what Jesus said. Do you know how some men deal with that text? We were talking about this at break time with about four or five. There's commentators that have invented a gate to the city of Jerusalem that is difficult for a camel to get through when it's fully packed. And the name of that gate was called the Eye of the Needle. Now the men who wrote that are talking about a city that has been razed to the ground and rebuilt several times since the days of Jesus Christ and they've never been there. There is no such thing. That is what skeptics come up with to try to take away the authority of the Word of God. If it was just a tight place where camels could get through, this is why the Bible will always defend you if you'll believe it. Why did, the Pharise- why did the apostles respond by saying, who then can be saved? Did they take Jesus to be talking about some gate in their city? that with difficulty you could get through? Or was he talking about a literal needle with a literal eye and getting a camel through it, meaning it's a hyperbole? An exaggeration to make the point that rich men aren't interested in the kingdom of heaven because they have to give up too much to follow Christ, just like the rich young ruler. Must you hate your wife to be a disciple? Hyperbole. In comparison to Christ, yes, but not absolutely. Should you pluck out your eyeball if it offends you? Jesus said to, or is that hyperbole for taking even the most precious things out of your life if they cause you to sin? Did 700 left-handers sling at a hair's breadth? Was Benjamin so good in military matters that they had 700 left-handers that could actually throw stones? And their target was not three by three. Their target was their brunette's long hair stretched between two nails. On a target a hundred yards away, they could throw a stone and hit that hair's breadth, all seven hundred of them left-handed. No. They would have trouble hitting the three by three target that held the hair with the nails of your brunette girlfriend. That's hyperbole that there were seven hundred left handers that were very good with the sling. I'm sorry to take away some of the excitement of the Bible if you think that's what I'm doing. I'm serious. You know, I remember when I first read that as a boy. I wonder how far, 100 yards? I'll tape it on the goalpost. We're being literalists. And literalism will get you in danger in the Bible. It's full of figures of speech. Everything is possible if you believe. How far you want to take that one? I I can fly. Paul couldn't get rid of his thorn in the flesh. On and on it goes. Faith like a mustard seed can move mountains. Remember? I used to stand in the field as a little boy because I believed that verse. And there was a mountain in our area called Peach Mountain. It wasn't a very big mountain. I'd look at Peach Mountain. (laughs) Be cast into Portage Lake. Because that was the lake there. Dad, my dad knows what I'm talking about. I, I believe the Bible and it never happened. Jesus is saying, He takes the smallest seed that was commonly known and said, If your faith is only that big, then He really mean you wouldn't have any faith if it was that small. If it's that small, you can move big obstacles in your life. I am not making fun of the Lord. I am not making fun of these promises. I am making fun of a literalistic Approach to the Bible where you don't get the beauty of the language. The Lord is just telling you, with a little bit of faith you can do great things, but I'm going to tell you, the man that he was talking to couldn't have moved the mountain in his life with faith as big as a mustard tree. Do you know who I'm talking about? The man that had a lunatic son. Neither his faith nor the apostles' faith could rid that man of his demons, devils. So Jesus said, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. So right in the context, again, the Lord will always deliver you if you trust the Bible. In the context, He tells you, this kind doesn't go out by the faith of a grain of a mustard seed. Hyperbole. And there are also many other... I'm going to hurt some of you with this one. I've heard so many sermons on this. Not the whole sermon, but references. And there are also many other things which Jesus did. The which If they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. I will grant you that our blessed Lord, the Son of the mighty God, was a busy man. But he wasn't that busy. Our Lord's ministry was only three and a half years long. It was only to one very small nation. How deep can we stack the books worldwide? If that's what we're going to do, how deep do we get to stack them? Is it one foot to get through a 6-8 door? How deep do we stack the books? John humbly exaggerated the brevity of his gospel in light of all Jesus did in his ministry. That's the last verse of his epistle. That's all he's trying to tell you. I don't want to take away anything that you consider fun. But I want you to delight in the, in the beauty of Bible language. This is part of Bible hermeneutics, learning how to think outside of a literal box. I've heard, I've heard great preaching on this one, and so have some of you here. We'll withhold the name. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Some of us here have heard a preacher confidently, repetitively tell us that you can calculate the minimum number of people in heaven from this text because you use Methuselah as the counter. And so it's got to be more than Methuselah could count in his 969 years, generally assuming that a person can count one per second. And so you can sit down with your calculator and figure the minimum number in heaven. Can we know the minimum number in heaven by this text with Methuselah as counter? What caused a man to take a position like that? A false doctrine to support that the majority of the human race ends up in heaven. What caused this? Obsession with literalism. Primary definitions. No man could number. No man. Well, what man could number the most? Methuselah, because he lived the longest. How fast can a man count? Maybe one a second. There's our minimum. That's hyperbole for there being a great host and crowd of people in heaven. Just like the same terminology is used to describe the camels of the Amalekites. Primary definitions of words is a heresy trap. You want to see figures of speech everywhere you should see a figure of speech. Let's go to irony. What was hyperbole again? We had three that were comparison, two that were substitution. That was exaggeration and it was called hyperbole. So now we're to another one. Irony. A figure using words to mean the opposite. The Bible means what it says and says what it means. The figure is obvious enough to be grasped if it is not obviously irony confusion results I mean when you're using words to tell someone to do something when you're using words to tell someone to do something opposite of what you intend you better be clear in that instruction a lie is not irony for a lie intends its words to be understood the way they're made irony is assuming that you know what irony is so that you will read it backwards. Example, go and ruin your life with drugs. Can you imagine a parent saying this to a child? Do they want the child to go and ruin their life with drugs, or are they actually saying the opposite? If you keep using drugs, you're going to ruin your life, so stop using drugs. But what's the better way to say it? Go ahead and ruin your life with drugs. It's irony. You'll never make that shot. When you say that to somebody, what are you trying to tell them to do? You're you're challenging them. You're daring them to go for it. Michael said, how glorious was the king of Israel today? Truth or irony? Who's Michael? David's wife. Was she praising him for gloriously worshiping God out there in the street? Or was she mocking him? Is this irony? Like her father Elijah, cry aloud, for he is a God. Micaiah, go and prosper, Ahab, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. True or irony? Isn't it wonderful? First Kings 22. Oh, who was I talking? Jerry. Who else was there? At the... Zach. This is one of those places in the Bible where they lied. The prophet of God flat out lied to Ahab. God had already told Micaiah that Ahab wasn't going to make it through the day. But since Ahab wanted to hear some good news, Micaiah the prophet gave him some good news. It's just false news. But he gave him a prophecy. He wanted to hear something good about the day's battle. Go and prosper. The Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Job, no doubt, but ye are the people. And wisdom shall die with you. Job said to his friends. Now, was he flattering his friends? <laughs> I love, do you love the Bible? Amen. But when you read it, stop and think about That's just precious. Can, is, this, is this dripping with sarcastic irony? He's been listening to them for about nine chapters. And he says, no doubt, but ye are the people. You got the answers for everything. Wisdom's gonna die when you die. He does not mean it. He is mocking them with irony. Ezekiel, go ye, serve ye everyone as idols. But don't take my name in your mouth anymore as the rest of Ezekiel 20 and verse 39. Soldiers to Jesus, hail, king of the Jews. Do they believe that? Irony. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.8. I'm sorry, you know, I put the I put the uh, figure of speech in red, so it's hard to read it because you're going to see it so easily, but here it is. Now remember the problems that he had with Corinth, that there were false teachers there who considered themselves Paul's superiors. And so he writes, Now ye are full. Now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us. Pagan idolaters in the city of Corinth without Paul. And I would to God ye did reign that we also might reign with you. This is just dripping with sarcastic irony. They weren't full, they weren't rich, and they didn't reign as kings without him. Everything they had was because of him. This is the church that he told in the same chapter about seven verses later. Though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, you've only got one father and it's me. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Irony. That's what they thought of themselves in comparison to Paul, but the opposite was actually the case. What is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches? Except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. Paul told the Corinthians, What have I done to offend you? Was it because I never took a collection from you the entire time I was there? But I was supported by my own hands, laboring in tent making, and the Philippians from Macedonia sent to my help a couple of times. Is that how I hurt you? Forgive me this wrong. Did he do anything wrong? No. Was he really asking for forgiveness? No. Is it a powerful rebuke? Yeah. Wow! Would you want to read that from the Apostle Paul? Forgive me this wrong for not having taken anything from you when the fat cats that were their preachers at this time were taking from a church made ready to their hand, as Paul would describe it in that chapter. Ah, this one may be a little enlightening to some of you. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. This was Satan's lie to Eve. Adam and Eve did, did not look more like God at all. They were less like God than ever before. He was fulfilling the lie to them and speaking it in irony. Okay, we come to another figure of speech called ellipsis. Here we're not using exaggeration. We're not using words in their opposite sense. The words are flat out gone. The words are simply missing in an ellipsis. A figure of speech that intentionally leaves out words. Now, this is not a printing error. This is not a publishing error. This is not a translating error. In the original text of whatever language you want to say, there were words missing, and it's called an ellipsis. It is a figure of speech when we leave words out that don't need to be repeated because they're understood by nature. You already know the answer. They're understood by context or in the sentences right around it. Why? Why would you leave words out? To add beauty, brevity, that means shortness or force, to a statement. The missing words are obvious in the context. The missing words are not an accident. This is not like modern versions in 1 Samuel 13, 1, when it says, and Saul reigned dot dot years. Because they lost the words. Our King James Version didn't. It's my You want to see a Bible babel? Go online to a Bible comparison website and look up 1 Samuel 13.1 and write down your results. If you want to save yourself the time, just go to the Bible Babel on our website. And you can see the results. Unbelievable. They missed a Hebrew idiom about Saul, the son of a year reigning. Never mind. I love the word of God. The Bible put that there just for them to confuse themselves in all the modern translations. Ellipsis, missing words. Example, Sherry loves music more than I. Does Sherry love music more than I love music, or does Sherry love music more than she loves me? Could can only be one. The case of the noun at the end of that sentence means do is missing. She loves music more than I love music. Sherry loves music more than I do. But you had to figure that out by the case of the noun at the end and that it was an ellipsis. Example, Joe studies banking, Tom baking. Is Tom baking? Was Tom baking? Or is studies missing and Tom studies banking? Are you with me? Ellipsis. Words are left out. Example, the love of money is the source of all evil in God. I'm not quoting scripture. There's no quotation marks. The love of money is the source of all evil And God, contentment. This is an example I've created for you. The love of and the source of are missing. The love of money is the source of all evil, and the love of God is the source of all contentment. Psalm 24, 6. Someone read it to me. Read it to the group, please. Psalm 24, and verse 6. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Was a generation five hundred to a thousand years after Jacob seeking his face, or were they seeking the God of Jacob? We can make it an ellipsis. We could make it a menonym where there is a worshiper of God put for God. But it's a figure of speech. Remember when we worked through that one, Chris? You once wrote a common meter rendition of Psalm 24, I think. You remember that? I love songwriters, sorry. <laughs> Proverbs 18:22. We've been over this one before, but when you read the Bible, read it critically and think, Proverbs 18:22, whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Are you sure? Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. Proverbs chapter 30 says that there are four things the world can't handle, it can't stand. An odious woman, when she is married. What happened to the poor guy who was married to her? When it says, whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. There's a word missing. Good is missing. Whoso findeth a good wife, whoso findeth a virtuous wife, findeth a good thing. Most men don't find a good thing. They find a nag that won't give them what they need and want when they need and want it, how they need and want it as many times as they need to want it. But when they fear the Lord, there's a difference. A virtuous woman, the heart of her husband, doth safely trust in her. She shall do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Rich is missing in Proverbs 19.1. Better is the poor that walketh in his integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. But because we have those two clauses opposing each other, we know that the second one is saying he's got the advantage of being rich, but the poor man with integrity is better than a rich man without integrity. But the word rich is missing. You're supposed to supply it. You're supposed to understand it. That's why it's an obscure saying. Matthew chapter... It's not Matthew 1. Matthew 11, verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking. How did he stay alive? Now, this is important. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. When the Bible says that John did not come eating nor drinking, what's the ellipsis to be understood there? John did not come eating ordinary food nor drinking ordinary beverages. What was his diet? Locusts and wild honey. He ate and drank. He just didn't eat bread and drink wine like the Lord Jesus Christ did. And once you lay down and understand this by comparing the gospel accounts, you understand that Jesus drank wine all the time. You know, the average person who hasn't read their Bible will think that Jesus made wine at the wedding feast of Cana, and they'll get all excited that they have found Jesus making wine. But it doesn't say he drank any. He drank it all the time. That was the beverage of choice of the nation of Israel, and he drank it all the time, so they called him a wine-bibber. And he was set in total contrast to John, who didn't come eating bread or drinking wine. If you were a Nazarite... What couldn't you drink? Wine, because you couldn't touch any product of the grape. Could Jesus touch the products of the grape? Someone will say, yes, but Jesus was a Nazarene. He couldn't either. Well, a Nazarene means he's from Nazareth, not that he had the vow of the Nazarite. I'm sorry, Nazarenes, that doesn't mean he was a member of your denomination either. Romans 8.5, I pointed this one out when we studied Romans 8.5 a little while ago. Look at Galatians 5.2, please. Galatians 5.2, these are verses that end up in doctrinal heresy if we don't understand them. Galatians 5.2, behold, I, Paul, say unto you, speaking to the Galatians, Galatians 5.2, behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Should I ask for a showing of hands how many people are here are circumcised? I won't. But it says if you're circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For all you that are circumcised, it's everlastingly too late, according to this text. Christ cannot profit you. In order to be saved... Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised in order to be saved, Christ shall profit you nothing, because the gospel is Christ plus nothing. Someone taught me that once. Christ plus nothing equals salvation by grace. You see that? Now, you could get confused about the role of circumcision if you read the Bible and didn't understand that there's an elliptical construction there, meaning if you're circumcised in a religious way for some sacramental value before God in order to be saved, First Timothy three two says the bishops should be the husband of one wife. At a time is understood in that context. Christ has become this is an important one. Galatians five four it's same same chapter. Listen to these words. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now you all have heard the explanation from me as to what the verse means, but I want you to think, I want you to think about it from the standpoint of a figure of speech. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. So the church of Christ and others come along and say that you can lose your salvation because of Galatians 5.4. You can fall from grace because Paul said the Galatians had fallen from grace. This text is used to teach losing your salvation. Justified by the law cannot be in reality. It cannot be a legal fact. It is in your doctrine is the elliptical construction. Let's read it again. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law in your doctrine, ye are fallen from grace because you have substituted your doctrine of justification by the law for the doctrine of grace. Sometimes I have worded it a little differently. It doesn't matter as long as you understand there's an ellipsis there that is saying you're only justified by the law in your head in your doctrine, in your understanding, and therefore you are fallen from grace in your head, in your doctrine, in your understanding. Fallen from grace is in your doctrine only. Wow, I think I just did that one. I'll get on the secretary when I get home. Same chapter, Galatians 5, with the 17th verse. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh... And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Does this verse mean it's impossible to live a holy life? You cannot do the things as well as desired. You cannot do the things without conflict. You cannot do the things perfectly. But you can do them. There's just going to be resistance from your flesh. Oh, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, the sugar daddy for the Mormons. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise, not at all. Why are they then baptized for the dead? What's the subject of 1 Corinthians 15, 29? The resurrection of the body. But the Mormons run in here, find this verse, that there's baptized and dead in the same clause twice. And so they build underground baptistries, in their temples where you can go and get baptized a hundred times for a hundred of your dead relatives if you can, by proxy, identify their name in your family tree. So you can save every one of your relatives as far back as you are able to go that didn't have a chance to be baptized by Joseph Smith or one of the apostles or ministers of the Mormon church. Baptism from the dead taken out of this text. The context is absolutely bodily resurrection. The middle clause declares that this is the thought in this verse. Because the middle clause says, if the dead rise not at all. The whole point that Paul is making turns on the resurrection of the dead. Because that is, if the dead rise not at all, my two sandwiching clauses are about that fact. And if you take that away, then those two sandwiching clauses no longer have any meaning. So what does baptism have to do with resurrection of the dead? It is a sign that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that we ourselves will rise from the dead. It's hope of the resurrection. We know baptism for dead relatives is wrong. No man can by any means pay a price to God or make a ransom for his soul, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. The Bible shows us many elliptical phrases which we've just been studying. So we assume... Resurrection of the dead belongs in each clause. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the resurrection of the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the resurrection of the dead? Try another one. Doesn't matter. Same point is just expressed in different words. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the hope of dead believers? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the hope of dead believers? Euphemism. A figure of speech using good words for a bad thing. Acceptable words for personal things. Polite terminology for intimate matters. They are chosen to be less shocking. They're chosen to be discreetly prudent. We must not use them to whitewash sin today. Example. What is collateral damage? We killed a bunch of babies with our bombing. It just doesn't go over in the newspaper. Or in speeches. We had some collateral damage. What is a sanitation engineer? Garbage collector. That's a euphemism. You're putting something bad in good terms. What is revenue enhancement? Tax increase. Adultery is just that. It's not having an affair. We don't use euphemisms when it waters down the doctrine of God. Gay is not a proper word for sodomy. Euthanasia hides patricide or parent killing. A brat child should not be called hyperactive. I can solve his medical problem in two days. With that other verse from Proverbs. And it's not Ritalin. Example. What is collateral damage? What is a sanitation engineer? How did Adam know Eve in Genesis 4.1? He knew her intimately. He knew her sexually because the result was their children and they were named. How did Abraham go to his fathers in peace? Isn't that a wonderful expression? Yes. You're going to go to your fathers. Where are they? In heaven. How's he going to go there? In a peaceful way. He's going to die in old age. How old was he? 175. How did the manner of women stop in Sarah? It's called menopause. Menopause. She stopped having her monthly period. Where is a hand that is under your thigh? What do you think Abraham said to his servant? Come over here, put your hand in the chair, and I'm going to sit on it. He said, come over here and grab my circumcised member and my family jewels, and you swear before the God of Israel that told me to have this thing circumcised. You circumcised it 30 years ago. Now go get my son a wife according to the covenant that God made with us. It's a euphemism. It didn't say, so Eliezer grabbed Abraham's balls and made a covenant. Well, the Bible's... What's the term in the Bible? It's not balls, it's stones. The Bible could easily have said, so Eliezer grabbed Abraham's stones and made a covenant. But it puts it this way, and there's more than this about the thigh in the Word of God than just this particular one. Why did Eglon and Saul cover their feet? Now... When I used to read this as a boy, King Eglon, the Moabite, he was in his summer chamber covering his feet. Saul went into a cave to cover his feet. I thought he was taking a nap. I thought he had gone in there and put a blanket over his feet because of your feet are your extremity. And if you put a little blanket over your feet, your whole body can be warm. But brethren, for you to relieve yourself, you have to drop your pants and they cover your feet. Both men went to take a dump. It's three times in the Bible. It's two times in the Bible. King Saul did it in the cave. Eglon did it in his summer quarters. Now, listen. the servants of King Eglon, the Moabite. Now, he's just had a visitor named Ehud. Now, we love Brother Ehud. He would be with us tonight if he was here. Brother Ehud went in there with an 18-inch dagger. And this fat old Moabite... He rammed him so hard that the whole dagger went in and the fat closed around the handle. He had to get his hand out of that slimy mess called his fat belly. And he left that dagger in him in the dirt, meaning his intestines and stuff, came out on the floor. And Ehud jumped out a window and ran for his life back to Israel. Now his words were, I have a present from the Lord. As he whispered in Ehud's ear, can we do this? Eglon's ear. Ehud whispered in King Eglon's ear, can we do this in private? Please, let's go into your summer chamber. So they went into the king's room, closed the door. The servants are on the outside, scared a little bit, wondering what's going on. I have a present from the Lord, and he got the dagger. Now it says the servants are out there in the hallway. It's been five minutes. How long does a man take? You know, um, 15 minutes. Then they're ashamed. When do we go in and interrupt our king's He's having a bowel movement. How long do we give him to read Sports Illustrated? How long is it going to take him? That's that's all in the Bible. You know how long they took? As long as God wanted them to take, so Ehud made it back to the borders of Israel. But it says, they thought he was in his bathroom covering his feet. They're just euphemisms. It's a nice way of putting something. Here's the opposite figure of speech. Bad words for an ordinary thing. Unpleasant words used for regular things. Crude speech expressing passion or vulgarity. Why? To make a strong point in an argument. Think toilet. Can we call a toilet a water closet or a crap house? Or crapper? One is a euphemistic way of talking about it and the other is the opposite. Who of Nabal's house did David want to kill? Everyone that pisseth against the wall. Abigail, if you hadn't got out here in time and stopped me, I'd have killed everyone that pisseth against the wall. Well, why couldn't he just say I'd have killed the men? Because he was angry. How did he suggest surrender to the Jews in Jerusalem? I'm going to make you eat your dung and drink your piss. And the ambassadors from Hezekiah said, Please don't speak in the Jews' language. Speak in Syrian. We understand that. <laughs> Because that's just scary. (laughs) You know, when you've got this massive army out there that's wiped out every other city on their way to your city and he's telling you what your diet's going to be in the future. This is the Word of God. This is the opposite. What will God do to rebels in sin? He'll break their teeth and tear them in pieces. Psalm 50. How did David pray for the wicked that they would melt away like snails under the heat of the sun? There's incredible language in... Psalm 58 about God judging His enemies. How did God use Ezekiel 16 and 23 to exhort the the nation of Judah by the prophet Ezekiel? Both of those chapters describe what we call spiritual adultery by graphically describing a woman being incredibly unfaithful, unlike any other woman. It's graphic. But it makes a point, doesn't it? That's what we're like when we flirt with the world, that is how God views us. Personification. Abstract or spiritual things are made a person. We use Father Time, referring to death is coming. Father Time's marching after you with his sickle. Lady Liberty, she stands at the edge of New, in, in New York Harbor. Mother Nature, for Uncle Sam. Those are concepts of Americanism. Represented by a person. That's what personification is. Solomon used this extensively in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. And if you miss it, then you're going to read Proverbs chapter 8, and you're going to start hallucinating about God having an eternal daughter. Because it's all feminine pronouns there, and that is where they go. One of their main places to go are opponents who believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. They go to Proverbs 8. But Proverbs 8 is not Solomon giving a doctrinal lesson about the origin of the Son of God. Proverbs chapter 8 is a personification of wisdom as a woman. That that woman was always with God. And that God delighted in her. Because God always had wisdom. You can't get a son out of Proverbs 8. You can get a daughter. Lord, help us. These are educated men that do this. Lord, we want to be your babes. Amen. Show us your truth. Amen. Parables are obscure, extended similes or metaphors. They're making a comparison. Similes and metaphors are comparisons. Parables are not earthly stories for the simple. They are dark sayings hiding truth from most. The key to a parable is to identify the lesson rather than nitpick the details serving the lesson. The Good Samaritan, what is the lesson? A lawyer asked a question. Who is my neighbor? The whole parable is given to answer the question, Who is my neighbor? The Jews hated the Samaritans. A, a wounded Jew was in the ditch. A Samaritan stopped and helped a wounded Jew, even though that Jew's own countryman, a Levite and a priest, passed by on the other side of the road and wouldn't help him. So, when God says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, the parable of the, the, parable of the good Samaritan proves what that means in its fullest sense. It means somebody that you might not like, somebody that you might have a cultural difference with, you will help them in a time of need if God puts them in your path in the ordinary course of business. Now, he went to the innkeeper. Is that in, is that in the church of God? He poured in oil and wine. Is that the Holy Spirit and the gospel? He gave him two pence. Is that the Old Testament and the New Testament? He put him on his ass. Is that the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, men can preach beautiful sermons. It will bring tears to your eyes. Who is my neighbor? Which details are important? Jew? Samaritan only. Two two pence? It wouldn't matter if it was three. In fact, the Holy Spirit could very well have written, He gave him two or three pence. Just like it was two or three eunuchs that looked out upon... Jehu, I'm sorry, I just I love the Bible. I love both of those statements. The prodigal son, what's the lesson? Forgiveness and don't you resent the care and attention that I give to sinners that repent. It is not about how fathers should give an inheritance to whoremongers. If your son comes up to you and says, I'm ready to go be a whoremonger, I want my half of the estate, I'm going to go blow it in righteous living, should you give it to him? No. Is the parable for that? No. What's the parable for? Is it about the prodigal? No. It is about the older brother in the field. Having a bad attitude about the celebration for someone recovered from a sinful life. The sower. What is the lesson? There are four possible responses to the gospel. Summarized. That's all. That's the lesson. There are four ways you can respond to hearing the gospel. Is it valuable information for farmers? No, they already know not to plant among thorns on stony sidewalks, etc. Is it speculation about regeneration? Should we try to figure out which ground is regenerate? No, regenerate men have fulfilled all four types of ground. As you should know in your own experience. The unjust steward, what is the lesson? That when we're about to get fired, we rob our employer? No. What is the lesson? That we should take care of the future. You say, well, why did he use an unjust steward? Because he's the Lord of glory and he can use anything he wants. Does it approve fraud? No. Is the verse, is the passage for getting an MBA? Because it says the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light? No. It means that you should take care of your future by living a holy and a sanctified life. If you need more help on that, it's called The New Bible Economics. It's only five to ten pages long on the website. This is my body. With this we close. This is my body. Jesus Christ, the Last Supper, as He instituted the Lord's Supper. Paul repeats this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Are you ready to defend and die for this figure? Our fathers in the faith have died for this text. Do you know anything about Lady Jane? Lady Jane was how old when she was Queen of England? 16. How long was she Queen of England? Six days. How did her reign end? She had her head cut off. Who cut her head off? Bloody Mary. Why did she lose her life, though she was Queen of England? Because she denied the Roman Catholic idea of transubstantiation that the wafer, the cracker in communion is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ because she understood those words right there to be a metaphor. This is my body. It represents my body. When when the Inquisitor challenged her where she could save her life, she said, he also said, I am the door. Does he have hinges? (laughs) Praise God, there were 16-year-old girls that face death. Lady Jane. Go Google her. Read the Wikipedia article about her. Do you know about these events? Do you know how many of our fathers in the faith have died over these four words right there? Denominations have been destroyed here. I'm using destroyed in the sense that Peter wrote about Paul's writings that the unlearned rest those scriptures to their own destruction. Destruction. Into heresy. This is my body. Catholics are literalists here. They're usually not. They're the world's greatest spiritualizers. Catholics are literalists here, though, when they come to this text. They love primary definitions right here. They don't see any figure of speech at all. Except one. Don't let me leave the page. They believe Jesus meant what he said. Said what he meant. In Latin, the words are hocus corpus meum. When the priest holds up that big cracker, see, he gets a big cracker, you get a little cracker, but when he holds up the big cracker and you all say, Lord, we are not worthy to have you under the same roof with us because he's holding up Jesus Christ. When he holds up the big cracker and turns it into God, his words are in Latin, hocus corpus meum. That's where we get the words hocus pocus. They invented trans trans, substantiation, the transformation of the substance. The bread is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. There is no longer any characteristics of bread left at all. It is not bread at all in any way, shape, or form. It is entirely and only the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. That is the Roman Catholic doctrine on those four words. Now, their figure of speech is in the word body. Because when they take the bread, when they take the cracker, they don't give the wine to the laity. The clergy get all the wine. He's got that big chalice up there and so you read about all the drunken priests in the church of Rome you just got the cracker you come forward you stick out your tongue he sticks it on your tongue and says be the Lamb of God the Lamb of God the Lamb of God the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. and if you're someone like Matthew Jones you go forward and you hold your hand like this he puts it in your hand you stick it in your pocket and you bring it to your pastor on Sunday oh There's good brothers here that want me to have one in my collection. So in my Catholic collection, I have that little sunburst on a little cracker, round cracker. This is my body. Brethren, our fathers have died over denying their use of those four words. The figure of speech is body. They make it synecdoche. Forget... Is synecdoche because they believe that the cracker is the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity. The laity don't need to drink the wine because as long as they eat the cracker, they're getting the blood. Because the bread is the blood. And it's the body. And it's the soul. And it's the divinity. you know what that means? The divine nature of Jesus Christ. This is the Roman Catholic doctrine. They call it transubstantiation because the substance is entirely transformed by their hocus-pocus words. This is my body. Lutherans come along and they don't want to be Catholics because, after all, their founder was such a strong anti-Catholic man, Martin Luther. They don't want to be Catholics, but they accept the cracker as truly God. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. But they can still see and taste the cracker. Yes, we believe what Mother Church taught us that this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, but we also, it looks like a cracker. It tastes like a cracker. It breaks like a cracker. So they know that there's still a cracker there. So they invented consubstantiation, meaning that there's two substances together, that Jesus is literally in and with the cracker. How? How do they do it? The Roman Catholics do it by understanding the four words literally. This is my body except a synecdoche with body, because it includes everything. How do the Lutherans do it? They see a synecdoche in the word body being part of the whole combination. Jesus didn't say, this is my body and bread. This is my body and a cracker. He said, this is my body, but he meant it synectically that the cracker was still there. Do you follow? This is what Lutherans do. This is what theologians have sat around and done for 500 years. How How can we be sacramentalists like Rome, and yet, we're not Catholics? We're Lutherans. This is my body. Presbyterians try to avoid both heresies. They deny transubstantiation and consubstantiation. But they still love Rome's sacramentalism. They call it the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Table. They believe Jesus really offers himself in the bread... These are their words. You can pull out your hymnal and look up the part in the Lord's Supper in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Trinity hymnals that we use. We, re- we use them for their songs, not for their confession of faith. They believe Jesus really offers Himself in the bread spiritually and really and indeed. That's their words. How? They see a metonym in the word body. For there is an association of the bread to Him. This is my body. There is an association of taking Jesus Christ in spiritually and really and indeed by eating the bread. Here we come. The truth is a metaphor. Would you die for the truth on this point? It is a figure of speech like I am the door. The figure is not in body, but rather in is. This is my body. You eat like a pig. You are a pig. Pig. Remember the three stages of figures of speech of comparison? This is the middle one. This is metaphor. This is my body. This is like my body. This represents my body. Body. He could have said, but he said the metaphor in the middle. This is my body. It represents, if I pull out a picture of my wife and I put it out in front of you and I say, this is my wife. What do you think? It's my wife? I mean, is that what I take to bed every night? Is that who cooks my meals? Is that who I company with through life? It's just a representation of my wife. This is my body. It's a representation of his body. The bread merely represents his body. He also said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Is it the cup or what's in the cup? It says, whosoever shall drink this cup. When was the last time you drank a cup? Or did you drink what was in the cup? hold their feet to the fire when they go in here and try to deny any figures of speech and want to take it literally. It is done only to remember, not to confer. There's no sacramental grace conferred in the Lord's Supper. It's only done to remember His death till He comes. Brethren, figures of speech in the Bible, part of Bible hermeneutics, that when you're reading, when you're studying, when you're defending, when you're teaching, the Bible does not always mean what it says and say what it means. It sometimes uses words in different senses than their ordinary use. We want to learn it. We want to think about it when we read. If you want to learn more on this subject, you can go as far as you want to with it. It can bury you. There's good websites with more figures of speech, more examples. And I have many more examples than those. But I hope it's been helpful tonight how beautiful the language of the Bible is. It teaches us truth and hides it from others and showed you some of those examples. It's powerful. It's plain. We see it. We're thankful for it. It's how to study the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. One of the things that always has to be turning in your head, do I have a figure of speech here? What figure of speech is it? What is the point being made by the figure? Do not let me err, O Lord, on missing a figure or missing the purpose of the figure. Help me, Lord. And let's pray for one another, and please pray for your pastor, that we will rightly divide the word of truth. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy great and glorious name. We love thy word. We love thy law. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would increase our love for it. Mm -hmm. Open its pages to us that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Grant us the spirit of illumination that we would know The things that are freely given to us of Thee, that natural senses can never show us. We thank You for the power of Your language that You have given to us. We thank You for the preservation of our King James Bibles. Bless us, O Lord, to be faithful to every word of God that we do understand. Let us not be content with any head knowledge of these things without bringing it to bear on our hearts, which then direct our hands and our feet, our tongues and our lips and our thoughts into obedience to You. We thank You for all that You have shown us. O Lord, we are not haughty, nor our eyes lofty, nor do we exercise ourselves in matters too high for us. But these matters are not too high for us. You have put them in our grasp, and we thank You for it. Those things that are too high Reveal them to us as your babes. See these men safely to their homes. Let them love their wives and train their children and work hard for their masters and be faithful to our government and be shining lights in this crooked and perverse nation. That they might be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. We pray, committing these things, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. amen.